to 32. Uh, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to hit straight licks with crooked sticks. And I want to say beforehand, straight licks with crooked sticks does not belong to me. I'm not that creative. That is a, that is a, a quote from Crawford Lawrence on a talk he gave on leadership. Okay. But I'm taking that little quote and applying it as an expositional uh, framework for, uh, verse 30, uh, verse, uh, 30, 27 through verse 32 of our passage today. Okay. So, so just know I didn't make that up. That's Crawford Lawrence. All right. But the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to hit straight licks with crooked sticks. As we come to our passage, don't forget Moses is writing to his people who has been led out of Egyptian captivity and they are wandering in the wilderness and preparing to enter the promised land. And they're entering doctrinal dangerous territory. They're coming into places where their doctrine is going to be challenged. Their teaching is going to be Basically thrown into chaos. Everything they've known and are learning about the Lord is going to be challenged. They're being formed into the people of God. And Jesus is forming faith in His people. As a matter of fact, the book of Jude even says Jesus who led a people out of Egypt. And so the eternal triune God of the universe is leading His people into the place He intends to be the launching pad for the Great Commission. And Moses is teaching them about their origins, who they are, who God is, and how they are supposed to operate. And we come here to some of the most boring stuff in the Bible, we think, is in actuality some of the hidden gems of Scripture. You read over genealogies in the Bible, and and most oftentimes we just skip over them because we think, geez, what is really there? And what we discover, if you will dig just a little bit, and if you listen up, and you come to church, and we talk about these things, because you know, if you come to Three Rivers, we'll preach all of it, right? We don't just go to the nice meaty passages, right? We we dig through all of it, the hard stuff, even the blasted, uh, grisly genealogies, right? You ever read a good piece of meat, and you get to the gristle, and you're like, "Eh, it's bad? Sometimes the Bible's got a little gristle in it, but gristle's got nutrition too, right? And so, I know you're like, that's gross, don't want to hear that, but there are places in the Bible Bible, we read them and we're like, ah, that's not so interesting. It's maybe a little bit boring, but I want you to understand. Hear this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Right? Paul told Timothy, and useful, right, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped. Right? And so, even the genealogies are useful. And so, what I want you to see in chapter 11, verse 10 to 26, is that God is faithfully present. In preserving a lineage of faith from Adam to Abram. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, 10 to 26 are mirror genealogies. And the purpose is showing the historical lineage of faith from Seth to the very first missionary, Abram. And the intention is to show us that God is present and He is faithfully propagating, building faith in His people so that He may launch them to carry this good news to the nations. Moses intends to show God's people the faithfulness of God to preserve the promised people in a specific place for a specific season coming out of Egyptian bondage that they may preach the good news to the nations. Sheth, 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 Shem, Sheth. Sheth to Shem. 
This is a tongue twister. Seth to Shem is ten generations. You see that in Genesis 5. Shem to Abram is ten generations. And these mere genealogies help us to see that God is faithfully present. It's easy for me when I read passages like Noah and the destruction of the earth to find God in all the wrathful places God shows up. And there's something maybe in our broken DNA that is that finds great joy in finding God's presence in those hard passages, in those wrathful places that are true and right and God righteously pouring out His wrath on sin. But we come to the more mundane places in the Bible and it's easy to skip over them and miss the point. That just as God is actively judging sin, He is also actively present in His people's lives, even in the mundane parts of life, such as growing up, marrying, having babies, feeding the babies, finding a place to live, and struggling through life. He is equally present there too. And so we see in these little boring genealogies, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred year old, hundred years old, he fathered Arphaxad. Two years after he fathered Arphaxad, uh, see, I can't see, I can't even read. Let me back up. These are the generations of Shem. When I put my glasses on, like this is blurry. When I take them off, I can see it, but it's still a little bit blurry. So it's lose lose. So when you start getting old, God's even present in the mundane stuff of losing your sight. Right? So we just do the best we can. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arphaxad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. Wow. Boring. When Arphaxad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arphaxad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. Boring. When Shelah lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. Boring. Any great adventure here yet? No. No. Okay. Well, let's keep going. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. No great life adventure yet. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Wow. Adventurous. When Rahu lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Rahu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. Wow, what an adventure. Right? You feel the sarcasm. should be dripping just a little bit. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These genealogies are there to remind us that God is not only present, but in His presence, He preserves the faith in the little, mundane, daily tasks of marrying, having kids, and simply passing on the faith and grinding out life faithfully. You see, for some reason in in, in our context, we have this idea that all of us are supposed to be special. That we were created for some great adventure. That people will write about one day and we will be famous. And I don't want you to ever get the impression on All Saints Day when we present to you some saint in history. This year we will do Martin Luther King Jr. That the expectation is you are supposed to go and be those people. 
It's not the expectation. The point is to show you how God works faithfully in all manner of broken people. Who at the time, many of them were not known. They were known after they were buried. And we have this idea that somehow we're supposed to be something beyond what God made us to be. And our life is supposed to be some great adventure. And the reality is, our lives reflect the presence and faithfulness of of God in the mundane daily grind of just surviving. It's easy to see God when the flood comes. It's easy to see God when the rescue comes. It's hard for us in this broken, fallen state to see God in grinding out, getting a tree off your outbuilding. To see God in in the sickness of your father-in-law. And your wife having to toss it back and forth to Chattanooga and Rome just to get by and getting your kids to football workouts and basketball workouts and prepping for the fall. Where are you, Lord? Very present. He hadn't gone anywhere. And the reality is God is near. And here's your application. God is near and He's working in history and He's working out His great ends to reach the nations in your and my mundane daily grinding out of life. And listen to this, whether you're ever known or whether you stay unknown, it doesn't affect God's ends. He is going to get the message there and He's going to save His people and our job is to be faithful where we are, whether we're known or not. Your job and mine is to grind out life And as Psalm 75 says, he raises some up, some he sets down. It's not my task to determine who that is or whether I'm one that sat down or raised up. My job is to look at the text and know God is faithful. He's preserving the faith. And my job is to remain faithful to him. God hadn't left the preservation of the faith in Jesus up to us. That's his job. Your job is to faithfully grind it out. Make disciples best you can. Train your family. Train those around you. Make disciples around you. And trust Jesus to take it from thither to yon. He has left that to us. He has called us to be faithful. We learn in the Bible that God raises dead hearts to life through the powerful gospel message. We preach... And what's beautiful here, sometimes God preaches the gospel before we get there. Because in a, in a couple of chapters, you're going to get over to chapter 14. And there's going to come this cat named Melchizedek who gets his own chapter in the book of Hebrews. And he's priest to God Most High. And you wonder, where did he come from? And the writer of Hebrews is going to make a big deal out of the fact that they ain't got no genealogy to him. And he didn't come from Levi. But he's priest to God Most High. How did he get saved? God saved him. Without the help of Abram or anybody else. And if you travel the world, you'll start to notice Jesus is preaching the gospel even before you get there. It's supernatural. It's powerful. God is present and He's preserving history. Through these unmentionable, hard-to-pronounce names who just grinding out, doing life, raising their kids, trying to feed them, trying to put a roof over their head, He's preserving the faith until the day He raises up an Abram. Now, check this isn't in your notes and this isn't one of the applications, but it's not my job or yours to determine whether or not we're an Abram. I'm probably Arphic Shad. You know, who knows? You probably are too. You're Sarug or Reu, right? Our job is to be faithful, right? And that doesn't mean God's not present when it's not working out. 
I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I need shepherding. And I had to sit down with Pastor Jim this week because, man, I got questions. And I needed the shepherding of Pastor Jim this week to remind me that when it's all falling apart, God isn't absent. Pastor Jim reminded me, Matthew chapter 4, that the Spirit took Jesus in the wilderness to test him. And Jesus hadn't sinned, done anything wrong, sown or or reaped in a poor fashion. He's the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe. And the Spirit took him out to test him, to prep him for the future. So we need to be reminded in these genealogies that God is faithfully present. He's faithfully present when you're just grinding out life. We see something here that's, I think, pretty important too. Although these genealogies, Genesis 5 and chapter 11, 10 to 26, are mirrored. We see the absence of one thing in Genesis 11, 10 to 26. And it's the absence of that repeated phrase in chapter 5, and he died. The absence of that phrase is intended to move the people that Moses is writing this to, and he's shepherding through the wilderness to enter the promised land. And it's intended for us to move us away from the devastating consequences of the fall to hope in God's plan to preserve the faith and multiply it through the earth. Because now they've come through the flood. And God has been faithful to preserve a people for himself. And now that Moses is leaving out this phrase, and he died, the death tinges off it. And it now leaves us with a ring of hope. And although we see in the passage that their lifespan is decreasing, we see that God is moving history toward the first missionary, meaning death is replaced with hope. Death is beginning to be replaced with the great hope that God is present, He's faithful, and He's working, and He will not let death or sin be the final say. And so as we read through these little passages, we note those little differences. And those differences have meat on the bone. And that meat for us is death is being dealt a death blow. And the good news for us is we read in the rest of Scripture that when Jesus comes and He lives and He dies and He's buried and He rises, He crucifies death forever. And we get our first glimpse that hope is coming. Hope is coming. These nations that have been scattered are going to be reached. And hope is greater than death for us. Everything from this point on in your Bible begins to look forward to this hope. Everything you read from this point forward is pointing to the hope that God is going to reach these people. As a matter of fact, all the conflicts going forward are going to be things that stand in the way of that mission. The conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's dark rebellion is going to escalate. Hope is greater than death, but the conflict is going to increase. So what are some things we can take away before we jump to verse 27 to 32? Number one, death is very real. But our hope in life through Jesus overcomes the fear of death. We now have hope that's on the horizon. Expect, number two, expect a fight to keep the faith. Because you're going to see it from this point forward. God's going to call imperfect people. And they are going to conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And their battles are only going to increase. They don't get less. They get more. Guess what? That doesn't change for us on this side of Jesus. (laughs) Because we're still fighting that battle. And it won't be completed until the Lord comes 
and finally and fully establishes His kingdom forever when the gospel has been preached among all nations. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel will be preached among all the nations and then the end will come. And when that last person has believed the gospel in the last place on the face of this planet, Jesus will return and finally establish His kingdom. But until that time, expect a fight for the faith. Matter of fact, Paul would say it to the Thessalonians like this in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, the tempter, Satan, was targeting what? Their faith. And Paul was eager to find out how they were. So he had to write to find out, are you still believing? Are you hanging on? Are you holding on to hope? Are you trusting that Jesus is working? Are you trusting that He's present when it looks like He's not? That's the very essence of what it means to trust, to have faith in Jesus. Is in these moments of mundane living that when it's bad and doesn't look like it's working good and we're just grinding it out and wore out, that He's present when He's not absent. Paul wanted to know, you still believe and you're hanging on? We look for the persecution of our faith physically, when in fact, often persecution comes at us in comfort with apathy. Or forgetting. Or distraction. The reality is we learn here that hope is greater than death. But we need to be reminded that He's present and that hope is real. Verse 27 to 32, we see now that the narrative is going to shift to this first missionary. And and the beautiful, this is just absolutely gorgeous, that God working faithfully and grinding out life had a plan. And that plan would be that he would bring us Abram. So let's look quickly here. God is at work hitting straight licks with crooked sticks. I love the fact that God doesn't choose good people to be His instruments. He chooses the most crooked sticks on the ground. And there's great hope here for us. uh, Not Matthew, uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Following niece, uncle. Straight family stick, but still a crooked stick. You follow some of these things, we just read over them. And you read over the fact that, hey, we don't do that today. Right. They probably shouldn't have been either. Right? A little gross. You see the crooked stick already, right? Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. God is at work in the mundane, hitting straight licks with exceptionally crooked sticks. You see, Abram 
comes from a polytheistic religious background with all manner of idolatrous teaching. You say, how do you know that? Well, Joshua 24, 2. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. If you don't know where that is, it don't matter. I'll read it for you. You can look it up later. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Even their family names are derived from moon worship. Terah means lunar month. Sarai is the equivalent of the Akkadian word Saratu, meaning queen. Speaking of the queen of the moon. Milcah, the name of the goddess Makatu, a title of Ishtar, the daughter of the moon god. Remember last week, the Tower of Babel, these ziggurats that they built that reached up to, to where they believed in the, in the places where the gods would come down and refresh themselves and, and they would offer sacrifices to the gods. This is Abraham's people. This is Abraham. This is the one who worships the moon god and many other gods and doing everything they can in the perversion of the knowledge of God. So we see here that Abraham comes from a polytheistic religious background. His family names are even broken, which, by the way, later God is going to change his name. And we see something very cool here. God was at work in Abram. Now I want you to follow this. This is huge. Because, man, this changes how you do evangelism. This, this changes how you view God at work in your own life. There's strategic implementation. And if we were in a classroom, I'd take a dry erase board and I would have you speak to me all the different strategic ways this affects how we do evangelism. But just pay attention. Are you here? Are you tracking? Because if not, I need you to turn on right now. This is important. God was at work in Abram long before Abram fully knew the Lord. He was also at work long before Abram was the decision maker of the family. In this context, the eldest, the father, is the one making the decisions. And who is that? Terah. God was working with Abram through Terah to get Abram where God wanted him to be. You say, that's a bold statement. Well, let me give you some scripture here. Genesis 15, 7. And Genesis 15 is really where Abram gets to know the Lord in salvation. Abram here doesn't yet know the Lord salvifically because the Lord hadn't made a covenant with him. The Lord's going to make the covenant in chapter 15. But we're in chapter 11 and we're seeing God's faithful in the mundane things of life. And family head, Terah, is leading the tribe. But Genesis fifteen seven says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Who brought them out of Ur? The Lord. Who was leading the family? Terah. Are you tracking? Who moved who through who? The Lord moved Abram through his unbelieving father. Boom. Mind blown. Because God was at work in Abram, the moon worshiper, long before Abram knew God was at work. Nehemiah 9.7 You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. 
So who brought him out of her? The Lord did and changed his name. Even though Terah was making the decisions, who was in charge of the decision making? The Lord. This is why we say some of the things we say about God and his good sovereignty. Terah, the moon worshiper, is making decisions about where they live, but who's directing his heart? The Lord is. The Lord's not sitting up in heaven going, I hope Tara makes a good decision because the end of the world is kind of riding on him. No. No. The Proverbs teach us that, that, that man makes decisions, but the Lord determines his steps. So God's at work in Abram long before Abram realizes what God is doing. As a matter of fact, Acts 7, 2-4 speaks to this before Stephen is martyred for faith in Jesus. He's recounting their history in front of the Sanhedrin. And he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. God was appearing. And according to these passages, Abram didn't even know what's going on. God is making himself known through Terah, the unbelieving one, and moving him to where God wants him to be. Listen to this very carefully. God was supernaturally working faith in Abraham before he knew it. God was already hitting straight licks with moon-worshipping inbred sticks. We learn something from this passage that God himself is the hero of this narrative, not Abram or anybody else. When we read passages like this, we are to be reminded that the hero of the text is the God who's working in the mundane and taking those who don't even know yet and using them for His glory and for their good. God is the not-so-hidden hero in the text, if you just pay attention. As a matter of fact, we read here that Sarai, before she gets renamed Sarah, can't even have kids. And God is going to pick her to be the one who is the mother of the nations. That's awesome. That's absolutely fantastic. Why? Because God's the hero of the text. He's the hero of the mundane. He's the hero of hope that's greater than death. What are some applications we can bring out of this? Well, number one, I've got a few and then we're going to close. Number one, no one is unsavable or outside of God's reach. Nobody's unsavable or outside of God's reach. When God can take moon-worshipping, polytheistic pagans and give them a new heart and turn them into the father of the nations... Nobody in Rome, Georgia, unsavable. Nobody. Nobody. And often I feel like we set our sights too low. And what I mean by that is we want the people that can pay the bills. We want the people who are intellectually where we are. We want the people who are easy. And what I find in the text is God delights in taking barren women and moon-worshipping men and turning them into leaders of the faith. Meaning, for you and I, strategically, where ought we to aim? (laughs) Some of the hard things. This is one of the reasons, as a church, we chose 15 years ago to go to the hardest place at the time we knew to go to work globally. Because God delights in working in hard places with hard people. Because it shows Him to be the hero of the story, not us and our strategy. No one's unsavable. No one's outside of God's reach. We also see here as a point of application, Abram did not have to clean himself up for God to take notice, and neither do we. God was working in Abram long before Abram knew 
God was working. And what I want you to understand strategically is God's at work in our town, whether you see him working or not. And when you engage in those hard places, you start having eyes to see. You begin to strategically notice who is God raising up. Jesus gave some really practical knowledge on this in Luke chapter 10 when he sent some guys out and he gave them some instructions on how to go out. And one of the things he talks about is looking for that house, those people of peace where the peace of God dwells. He says, stay there and proclaim and heal. And stay there because and, and receive what they give you because the worker deserves his wages. He ought to be paid. He ought to be fed. And he ought to have a place to sleep. And so as you go out and you work, you look for what? A place of peace. Who will receive you? Who will listen? That's how you begin to know, practically, evangelistically, who you need to share the gospel with. If they're like, no, don't want anything to do with you, get out. Okay. But if they're like, oh, sure, let's talk. Could it be that God is working in them like he worked in Terah and Abram? Maybe. So guess what you do then? Drop the G-bomb. Talk a lot about Jesus and his salvation. Talk about how the eternal creator of the universe came and he took on flesh to, to come and die and live perfectly and die on a Roman cross at the wrath and hands of God the Father in order to pay the penalty for sin and he would be buried and rise on the third day to conquer sin and death so that all those who repent and believe and receive Jesus get a new heart and a new life and a new relationship with God and their birth into the kingdom of God. Start dropping that on people and watch God do in them what he did in the moon worshiper Abram. Right? It's in the manual. You hear me say that a lot. It's in the manual. We don't have to, it's right here. God's at work in the mundane. Hope is greater than death. And God's at work in those who don't believe before they believe. As a matter of fact, we would go so far as to say, because of passages like Ephesians 2, that God begins to bring people to life before He saves them. As a matter of fact, they can't be saved until they believe. They can't believe until they have faith. They can't have faith until God gives them faith. And then Romans 10. How they go know all this unless somebody's sent and preach. Therefore, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So therefore, we don't expect them to clean themselves up and bring themselves to us first. We go to them. We go to those who need to hear. Because God is already at work and He has gone before you. This is a beautiful thing about where we began to work 15 years ago. We got there and found Jesus was at work long before we thought this was a good idea. Dreams and visions. And people who were working there long before it was okay or it was cool to work there. Hidden people. People you'd never know their names. Never know who they are. If you go to Pan, you'll meet a couple of those heroes. And nobody knows who they are, but Jesus knows. And there are believers in that hard place who know who they are. And they owe their trust in Jesus to the blood, sweat, and tears of these old saints. Who you'll never know who they are. No books written about them. Didn't write any books. They were just grinding out faithfulness to the Lord in the hard times and the mundane times. And Jesus saved people because of it. So we go not expecting them to get right before we go to them. Do you feel the challenge on that just a little bit? You should, because it's a, it's, a, it's a Bible challenge, right? It's so easy for us to come to church and look for something to get rather than realizing we are the mobilized ambassadors of God to go. Which is why the church in the West is the least effective on the planet at reaching the nations. 
We got a lot of money and we got a lot of sources and resources. And we got a lot of products, but we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of goers. And I mean goers across the street too. I don't mean just globally. I mean across the street. Number three, God is at work bringing representatives from every nation to life even as we speak. This is the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit and the gospel. The Holy Spirit never rests. The gospel never sits. The word of God, Paul prayed. He asked the churches to pray that the word of God would speed on ahead. You should pray that. That the gospel would speed on ahead and get there and go to work. And this is, this is why, oh gosh, this is John 15. Jesus said, I chose you and I gave you a mission to go and bear fruit, fruit that should last so that, so that, here's the purpose cause, you would ask me and I would give it to you. That's almost backward of our theology. We think we have prayer to get results. Jesus said, I gave you a mission so that you can pray to me for that mission and I'll be glad to give it to you. We want to put prayer before the mission. And Jesus said, I gave you a mission to go. Go, get after it. So when you ask me for the mission, as you go, I'm glad to give it to you. This is a biblical mandate for ready, fire, aim. I believe that with all my heart. Because if you just sit and aim all day and look for the perfect opportunity, the gospel's never going to go to hard places. Because you'll find every reason on the planet to not do it. Too much money. Not enough time. Too dangerous. Guess we should wait. If Paul waited, he might never have been shipwrecked, beaten, hungry, cold, naked, and in prison. But because he went, and as he got in those scrapes, said, Jesus! We read in Acts that the Lord came and sat with him in prison. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? And then there are times he made, for Peter, prison doors open. We want the prison doors to open before we go. That's our, oh, the Lord opened a door. Sometimes the Lord doesn't open doors till you're in a scrape. You see, God's at work bringing people to life even as we speak. And our task is to go. And as we are going, Jesus, we got a need right now. And the Lord's like, that's exactly what I ask you to do. I don't know how he does it. Waves a finger, twitches his nose. There it is. And I promise you, as a follower of Jesus, you will never see supernatural supply until you need the supernatural. You will not get the supernatural unless you're in a scrape. There's no need for it. Number four, God begins to bring people to life before He saves them. Therefore, when doing any evangelistic activity, pay attention. I already said this, but for repetition's sake, to learn. Pay attention to who is open and ready to listen and dialogue. You may have simply run up on a person being awakened to life. So be ready. This is why we're told in the scriptures, right? First Peter 3, 5, always be prepared. Always be ready. Always be ready. Because you never know when you sit down at the coffee shop who the Lord designed to sit across from you at that moment. And if you're so caught up in yourself and your world, you will miss it. But if you walk into that place with eyes to see the Lord at work and Him going before you, there's some divine conversations you get to have. Just like I told you about Tristan on the trail running a few weeks ago. The Lord appointed that for him and for me. 
I don't know where he is with the Lord. He may get saved 5, 10, 20 years from may never get saved, but he heard God sent him a prophet. Have eyes to see and ears to hear because he's at work in people before you get there. Five, we're to maintain a position of humility. If there's any straight lit coming from crooked sticks like Abram and me and you, it's because the Lord's the hero, not us. The temptation on the part of crooked sticks is when straight licks start coming off of them to think we did something good. When in fact the good is because of God taking crooked sticks and working in them so that all glory goes to Him and we get the joy of watching Him work. So when God begins to hit straight licks with crooked sticks, we have to fight to maintain humility. And finally, we're to worship the Lord Jesus for all of His preemptive, supernatural, mundane, powerful grace to make sure He preserves the faith and puts us right where we need to be. One of the things you'll always notice in the Bible is these great events usually end in some kind of service. Genesis 15, you're going to see this work that God began in Abram culminate in this amazing covenant-cutting ceremony in which these animals now are laid out. They're halved in two, right? And there's blood that's been spilled. And God is going to take Abram and put him in a deep state of trance. I know that sounds weird, but he's going to put him in this deep, dark place. And there's going to be a smoking fire pot that passes between these two halves. And God is going to make a covenant with Abraham where Abraham is going to be his. And his people are going to be his. And God's going to be their God. And he's going to go before them. And in that moment, Abram gets saved. And God names him Abraham. The end of all that is always these worship ceremonies where God is exalted and they get the benefit and the joy. Nehemiah, how do they end the building of the walls? Two great choirs come out and stand on top of the brand new walls and sing. Sing. What do they do when they cross the Jordan? They go back and they get 12 stones, each representing the 12 tribes, and they bring them out of the middle to be reminded, we passed through on dry ground. And they set them up and they worship. And so therefore, we as a church, we don't just do worship because it's a cool thing to do and music should be played and it's like, well, it's what attracts people. And we worship because it is the outcome and the tenor and the movement of the whole of Scripture. That when God is faithful, we respond in worship. And so we worship. There's a movement to our service. Sorry for the strategery for a moment. We don't just willy-nilly put a service together. There's a movement to it. And it feels herky-jerky. Because the goal isn't your comfort or you feeling smooth. The goal is we would see the Lord and respond. Sometimes that's standing. It's hearing the Word. It's sitting down. It's taking the elements. It's hearing the Word preached. It's praying. It's now song. So the goal isn't that you feel, well, that was really smooth today. That's not the point. The point is we set a pattern of movement that sees the Lord and responds in worship. And so we've come upon another time of response. What's that time of response? That we would sing to the Lord. And I want you to hear this. You're the choir. Not these guys. Their job is to provide a non-distracted, best way they can, avenue for you, the choir, to stand on those walls and bring glory to Jesus. So guess what? I want you in just a moment, when they tell you to, to stand. 
And I want you to respond to the Lord's grace. Because if, you, if you're in this room and you're not in Jesus, He brought you here on purpose. No mistakes. There are no chances, no happenstance. The God of the world who created the atom and causes it to work in all of its microscopic, supernatural ways put you in this room on purpose. And you may need to respond to Jesus in faith and trust Him. You may be in Christ and He comforted you today. We need to respond in song and worship. You may have got challenged today. You need to respond in song and worship. So either way, there's lots of responding needs to happen today. So will you do it? Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would bring forth our praise, but also we pray for the praise of the nations. God, we ask that you would work in the nations. We ask that you would do great things among the nations. We ask that you would do great things in Rome, Georgia, that there would be There will be people who know you, who love you, who walk with you. And that we would have an outworking of our faith. Because faith without works is dead. So God, I pray that you would take us beyond our multiple Bible studies to lives lived in worship. And working our faith out in disciple making. And fixing what is broken in our city. God, would you do that work in Three Rivers Church and in all of Roman Floyd County.